Okay, good. Love Talk Radio. Child Abuse Now show, and this is scan number 3110. That's 3110. Um, I'm Carol Levine, Vice President of NASCA, and I'm going to be running the show tonight. I usually run it on every Friday night, and sometimes on Thursday nights or when I'm needed. But anyway, we have a really, really good guest tonight, and we do have a couple people here on the panel. So this will be a good show, and it really has to do with what I'm seeing here a lot with mental health. She is a social worker. She's an author. And she's got quite a story to tell. So let me get, um, let me speak about the mission statement. I, I do that. And uh, her name is Chisara Okai. Oh, shoot, I had it before. Okay, he, that's her last name, okay, he. Chisara Okay, he. And uh, she's from California. And she is a child abuse survivor, social worker, and author. And on and on it goes. So we're going to have a very good show. And uh, let me read the mission statement. We have a singleness of purpose at NASCA, and that is to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent and physical abuse, mm -hmm, emotional traumas, and neglect, and we do so two different ways. Number one is educating the public, especially as related to getting society over the taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, presenting the facts that show child abuse to be a pandemic worldwide problem that affects everyone. And number two is offering hope for healing through numerous pairs and providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. If you go to our NASCA website, that's N-A-A-S-C-A dot org, that's NASCA dot org, okay? If you go to that, you'll see that they're in the red blocks as you scroll down a little bit, it's a little bit under the mic, I think, um, you'll see all different kinds of topics there. And you can learn an awful lot about child abuse, also about parenting, how to teach your children about parenting, you know, parenting issues, and also, too, about the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's what the parents need to teach their children in today's world, about the good, the bad, and the ugly, not just crossing the street or the pervert that might come out from behind the bush, okay? Um, there's so much more that they need to learn today, um, the red flags of uh, people out there that they should stay away from and why, okay? Always the why should be answered. So tonight, let's get to our guest, uh, Charissa, is that better? 
Yes, it's Chisera. Chisela. Okay, maybe there's a letter missing yes. here. I don't see any L. All right, Chisela. Okay. Anyway, um, why don't you start out by, you know, telling your story. And, um, I, you know, I'm going to stop here a couple times because we have a couple people here, Lori and Philip, who may want to ask a question or make a comment about what you're saying. And then also, too, I might have something to say. And, uh, you know, I might want to ask you a question. And I know that this is a very, very sensitive but a very, very good topic here tonight because I agree with you, mental illness is something that is not addressed the way that it should be in our our country. And maybe not in anywhere, any country. I don't know. I can speak about our country, okay? Um, Actually, a few years ago, some years ago, it was uh, more interaction and then too many years ago, there wasn't anything. And then today, with all the chaos that we're living through, um, a lot of the facilities and even the the hospital that I worked at um, has been torn down. So there's not the facilities that we need. And people, instead of being helped, um, and hopefully they are helped in these facilities and hospitals, um, are out on the street. So it's a very, very bad world that we're living in right now. Needs a lot of prayer. That's what I think. So go ahead, start your story, and uh, let's go from there. Go ahead. Well, I just want to thank you for this opportunity. Um, like I said, my name is Chisera Okehi, and I'm a survivor of childhood abuse. Um, um, my mother had severe mental health issues. She had borderline personality disorder that she struggled. Um, with till this day, and because of her lack of capacity um, to be protective, nurturing, or caring, um, that led to me and my siblings enduring a lot of childhood trauma. Um, In my book, I write about one of my first memories was at four years old being sexually abused, and I told the adults in my life, and nothing was done. So at that point in my life, I internalized that um, if I asked for help, you know, help was not available. So I suffered a lot in just the shame of of the trauma that I experienced. And um, I tell the story in the book of what led me to asking for help and um, how I was able to start on my healing journey and how it's been progressing so far. Um, One thing that I want to highlight in this conversation and what I highlighted um, in my writings is that there is a negative stigma to mental illness as a whole in our community. Um, I know when my mother was coming up, um, you know, having mental illness, people um, that suffered dealt with a lot of um, stigma, shame. They were ridiculed. They were cast out because people really didn't understand that. And because of that, um, because of the shame around it, my mother didn't seek out help. Um, and because she didn't seek it out, um, her trauma that she also experienced in her life, um, plus the mental health issues, just cascaded down to her children, and um, we were all damaged in different ways. Um, When I was in my late 20s was the first time I met with a therapist because at that point my life was out of control. I was having panic attacks. I was having anxiety, but I didn't know what it was. And I had shame because of what I saw my mother experience asking for help. But 
once my life was unbearable, I went to the doctor and I explained what was going on. And she told me, you have anxiety. Um, And just hearing those words put my mind at ease because I felt like I was losing control of of my life. And um, with that diagnosis from my primary care doctor, I was referred to a psychiatrist. And once they completed the assessments and I met with my therapist for a few times, they told me that my diagnosis was generalized anxiety disorder and complex PTSD from childhood trauma. And that just, um, knowing what was wrong with me, having a name and a diagnosis helped me do research and figure out what were the best evidence-based um, treatments, what were the best trauma-informed treatments for people who had experienced um, the type of life that I experienced. Not only did I have to deal with uh, sexual abuse at the age of four, um, because of my mom's mental health issues, um, the the marriage with my father um, broke down, so there was a divorce. Um, because of the divorce, that led to us living in poverty. Um, so it was just complicated factors on, on top of complicated factors. And my life, I should have, you know, ended up being a statistics and, you know, being on drugs or, you know, I had you know, suicidal and different things like that. But I think one gift that I had, even though my mother was not the parent that I needed to be, her to be and my father was absent due to the divorce, there were a lot of people in my community and school that helped encourage me on my path to be uh, as successful as I've been able to become. Um, and um, another reason um, for the the profession that I chose, getting into social work was because as a child, my mother had to rely on social services. She had to rely on social workers, and those people were impactful in my life at different periods. So um, that instilled in me at a young age that I knew that I wanted to give back when I became an adult. So um, I went to undergrad, um, which really just opened my eyes to the level of abuse and the different types of abuse that I had been exposed to. Um, and it just it, it gave me a sense of closure, just the understanding of it. And because of my personal experience, I'm able to bring that into relationships and connections with my clients. Um, I'm now a clinical social worker, and I provide trauma-informed mental health services here in Northern California. So I work with individual clients, and I also work with groups. And one of the common themes is um, that they're all struggling with different types of trauma um, from different areas of their life. But I I try to be honest um, with them to let them know that healing from trauma is hard, but it is possible with the right support and tools um, to help you get through your journey. Great. Okay. You said ten mouthfuls. There you go. <laughs> Usually it takes people a little bit longer to get to where you got. <laughs> okay. So um let let let's go back let's go back a little bit because uh a lot of us, okay, have uh oh my god, a lot of us have gone through horrible sexual abuse and we know what it does to a child, you know. Or you you mentioned panic attacks. My book is called Panic Child. It's all over the world. Yeah. The Medici Japan has been sold by all these different companies. Am I getting any money from it? No, but I don't care because it made it to Japan, and that's big enough for me, okay? I wasn't in it for that. Yeah. But anyway, the point is this. 
um, that's one of the many things that um, that children can suffer from. And it's such a horrific thing. Let's talk a little bit about panic attacks because there are people out there that, uh, you know, that don't know, don't understand the feeling like you and I do from the panic. And, and, and you know, it's so weird. Um, you know, it's really so, so weird. Chisala? Chisala. Chisala. There we go. I wrote it down. The L was missing in the bio from your name. That's why it's having such a hard, you know, way of putting it. But anyway, the point is this. There's so many of us who suffer from panic. And a lot of times when you suffer from panic, you think you're crazy. You know, you think you're going yes. nuts. And, uh, you know, so you have the sweats. You have the, the rapid heartbeat. Um, I actually did a little bit of damage to my heart because uh, I had so many panics. They started at the age of nine, and they didn't end until I was 49. So that's 40 years of having panic, Okay. And um, I got help earlier, believe me, before I was age of 49, but pills weren't helping me, and um, and the therapy did help me. And that was actually through a church, and that was unbelievable that those people were in that church, but it was a huge prayer group, and they had counselors there, and they're the ones that saved my ass in plain English because they got me too into, uh, you know, social services and all this sort of stuff of working in that line of, of work. But I had to heal first, or, you know, be definitely on my healing journey. Let me ask you something. When you had your panic attacks, um, we both know what that feels like, which I very quickly described. And uh, quite frankly, the only thing that got me over my panic was I got mad at it. I, I was having a panic attack in the store, 49 years old, mind you, and this guy was looking at me. And I, I felt myself flush and then blush, and then my heart started to pump much too hard, too fast. And um, I felt fear. And you see, my abuse started when I was six, my sexual abuse. So you see, when we're abused at such an early age, too, and it's repetitively, you know, one time after another, after another, after another, it makes the panic attacks, I think, uh, you know, it makes them stronger. They they can last longer unless you get proper medication, which I didn't, and, and all this other stuff. So I, I have to say that I think you're wonderful. First of all, you're very well-spoken. I like that. Um, so what happened to you, and you have quite a bio here. There's a lot of things that happened to you. And, uh, you know, from going from one country to another country because of your mother's mental illness, as you have it here, you were kidnapped from yeah. Nigeria and taken to the United States by their mentally ill mother. Um, yeah, I was having a manic moment at that point when um, she took me and my siblings from where we were living in Nigeria. Was, my father's Nigerian, so we were living there. And during that panic, a manic attack, she... She took us, and that was around the age of seven when my anxiety um, first started, and I was able to work the timeline down with my therapist to figure out when my first panic attack happened, and it was as early as age seven for me. Mhm, mhm. So you see, um, the the things that can happen to children, you know, um, because of, of child abuse and, and the sexual child abuse uh, is is always very bad. All the abuses are bad, like I just read off from the uh, the page here. I mean, it's physical, mental, emotional, 
sexual, psychological, you know, uh, neglect, all these things we go through, all these things we go through. And how old were you, did you say, you were, uh, how old, you, you really came out with quite a spiel there. How old were you when you first got your help? Did you say 20-something or whatever? I was in my late 20s. I was um, newly divorced. I had a three-year-old daughter. I was in school getting my undergrad, and I was working full-time. So my life was out of control, and I didn't realize it because I am the type of the per- person that just keeps pushing and pushing and pushing, but I hit the wall. And one day I was at work, and I started to get tightness in my chest and the shortness of breath, and like you were describing, the flesh feeling, and I felt like I was losing control of my body. And I went to the restroom, and that's where I broke down, where I was on the ground and I was gasping for air. And at that point, I thought I was having a heart attack. Um, I took a few moments to get myself together and, you know, asked my supervisor if I could leave, and that's when I went to the doctor and described those symptoms. And because I had so many heightened symptoms, at that point, I needed medication to help um, with my anxiety, to help with my insomnia, to help with my appetite issues, because I didn't realize that anxiety was affecting every aspect of my life. And a lot of people are walking around not realizing that anxiety it impacts your, your, your eating, your sleeping, your irritability, your relationships with other people. Um, and it could be very invasive and debilitating. It absolutely is. It, 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 it is debilitating. Uh, my panic was so bad that I, at times I didn't want to leave the house. I didn't want to go to school when I was a kid. I couldn't handle my peers, you know, looking at me. Um, well, for one thing, I wasn't being well cared for, so, I, did, you know, I, had, I didn't have proper clothing and stuff like that. And uh, so I was always fighting. I turned into a fighter. I think that's what, what kept me going was the fact that um, I, would, I would get into fights and I'd punch them right in the face. I didn't care. Okay, because they were making fun of me, right? And then um, mm-hmm. I turned to um, athletics. You know, I was, I was a runner. That took away some of the anxiety. And then also, too, into music. So I had outlets. Did you have any outlets? I, mean, I think yours is more educational because you. when did you start becoming aware of the fact that you wanted to become a social worker? Well, um, uh, for... Uh, a large portion of my childhood, because of all the chaos and the, the constant moving and my mother's patterns of mania and deep depression, um, college was not even on my radar. Um, until about seventh grade, I had a teacher, Miss Jones, that was really impactful in my life. Um, because of all the abuse that I um, endured, I was very shy. I was very withdrawn, um, you know, I, I wanted to be invisible. But my teacher, Ms. Jones, saw that, you know, I was intelligent and she saw that I had potential and she was the first one to plant a seed to tell me that, Chisera, I hope you plan on going to college. So from mm-hmm. that point on, college was a part of my plan. I didn't know how I was going to get there, but Eventually, everything worked out that I was able to go to college and then get my master's and now be a clinical social worker. That is so, so good. I'm so, so proud of you. All right, you know, because, like, there, we've had quite a few people on over the – I've been here, like, 12 years, okay, and running these shows. But um, 
we've had people in the past that turned uh, towards education rather than to alcohol and drugs, um, you know, and that type of lifestyle. Um, myself, I, I, I turned to alcohol, you know, like at a very early age, I think it was 13, because of the whole oh, life yeah. problem. You, know, you did too. I, I Most had people my, do. My struggle. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I, and I talk about it a lot in my book. Um, yeah, I started drinking, um, sneaking my mother's wine at 12. I started mm-hmm. smoking marijuana probably at age 14. Um, my mother um, started kicking me out of the house at age 13, so I was homeless for a portion of my teens, you know, between my mother's home, staying at a friend's house, uh, you know, wherever I could stay. So. Um, in order to endure just the, the chaos that was my life, yeah, I was underage drinking and I was smoking marijuana. Um, and it wasn't until probably my late teens when um, I was graduating high school and college was, you know, a, college was a forethought that I was like, this is not going to work with me wanting to pursue my education and, you know, get a good job and be able to support and take care of myself because I left my mother's home due to the chaos and abuse at the age of 18. Right. You know, so many of us do. I was like 17 and a half, okay? And uh, she threw me out anyway, (laughs) okay? So, but the point is I had a friend that was living with me, a girlfriend. She allowed for me to have friends. We had huge houses, so it was okay. And she'd keep her distance and I'd keep my distance, okay? And my brother, who was uh, one of my offenders, I, I was always running from him, and I would run away too. I would run away, and I know what the pavement feels like under my face because it's not comfortable on the ground, is it? No, it's not. So, no. you know, and then and then think about what we put ourselves through. I mean, I had to go to the bathroom just like everyone else. We're doing all this stuff on the outside. Hey, you look at San Francisco and, and, and places in New York and, and Chicago and all the, all the big cities and all this other stuff. Um I wasn't like that. I could go home, and the people I hung out with on the street, they had friends that had cars. It's just that they were they had no home, right? So we were together. They took care of me. I was like their kid sister. I was so lucky because I was watching older kids, older girls um, being pimped out on the street, you know, all this stuff that we hear oh, about, yeah. you know. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so only people like ourselves would know about, you know, what happens when you're homeless. And when I would, you know, go back home, um, I, you know, I'd get a ride. They'd sit at the end of the driveway. We owned many acres, so they could stay at the end of the driveway and not be seen. And I'd sneak into the basement, and then I'd make sure no one was upstairs in the kitchen. And then I'd go and I would get fruit. And uh, anything I thought that wouldn't be missed, I don't know why I cared at that point, but anything, you know, I felt like I was guilty in my own house, okay? I would take things I thought that wouldn't be missed, and yet I could share with the others. And, um, you know, the people that took care of me on the street, and I could go down the basement. We had a big wash tub there next to the uh, washer and dryer, and I would really take, I could almost take a bath in the blasted thing and then take back off, Okay. And uh, there was clean clothing down there. So, anyway, the point is this. But when you were out on the street, I mean, you're living a certain type of lifestyle. I was I was uh, taken care of out on the street by the others, like I said, but most people aren't. 
So you turn to, you know, a lot of times we're promiscuous, you know, we have this type of lifestyle, or you're the, uh, the opposite, you're hiding, you're, you're staying away from people because you're so afraid and, you, and your eyes see what they see. We saw all the drug abuse, all right, um, and all this other stuff. I've had friends die in front of me. I mean, it's a horrific way to live. And, um, you know, so, but at times I would go back home and no one would say, where were you and what happened to you? Nothing. Okay, so we live a certain type of lifestyle, and so for you to turn out so good with what you're doing, okay, I, I'm, I'm just so proud of you. Lori is jumping around. She wants to talk to you. I can tell. <laughs> Hold on a second. Uh, there yeah, she is. Her, her hand is up there. I, I can see her hand. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I know, right, because it doesn't stop. There's so, so, so many similarities um, between, like, our early lives and having to deal, you know, with mentally ill mothers. Um, yours was different than mine. Um, it's not, um, I don't even know how to say it. It's not like a stigma on them. It's just a different illness. Your mother at least made... Um, moves. I mean, she was functioning somewhat, and you picked up on it early in your age, and I guess from all the action, you know, from going one place to another place, you know, that's the way you just kept going, because that's the way you were trained to go, and that will to succeed, you you were born with that, you know, you just had to, you know, go around a whole lot of other places to get to where you are. Like on my end, my mother was like totally psychotic, uh, a very, very violent psychotic, never really interacted with normality whatsoever. I mean, even mm-hmm. though she even had a ceramic store at one time, and I had to run it, but her violence um, was out of control and it was seen and everybody in the neighborhood thought she was crazy. Everybody in the family thought she was crazy, and to tell you the truth for what she did to me, I thought she was crazy too, and I honestly believe that, you know, she hasn't changed. She is still alive, I found out. Um, but I could uh, definitely relate. Um, because um, my mother's borderline personality disorder, when she was in her manic state, you know, she would have all these bright ideas that's, you know, that's when she would go get employed and things in the home might be good for a couple of months. And then when the deep depression came, that's when she was really volatile. She was really nasty. She was very verbally and physically abusive towards us. Um, Like I discussed in the book, my mother was my first bully. And when you've been knocked down before you can stand up, that really rocks your foundation. And it it makes it difficult for you to trust, for you to believe in yourself or you to have feelings of self-worth. Um, and because of her irritability and her violence, um, that made us very fear- fearful and hypervigilant at home because we, we weren't sure what mood mom was going to be in, if this was going to be a good day or a bad day. So as young kids, we could never be comfortable at home. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and not having that sense of security can be very destabilizing at times. So I can definitely relate with your story. Yeah, and then on the other end, I mean, my father was a violent pedophile, and I was his obsession. And 
uh, it was better. I wish he would have left the house because my my anxiety level was out of control from my early rem- memories because that's all they did. They were in their own world and they were fighting and they didn't care that they were kids in the situation and they were just like abusing the hell out of us, mostly on me though. But um, you know, it kept it continued. You could like hear everybody knew that my father's inside personality he had a different personality on the outside. And he was a good-looking man, and he was able to blend in. But he was a horror. And what he did to to me totally wrecked my life. You know, I, I don't have any kind of childhood memories that were good with that family at all. Um, so what I did, you know, because I knew that I didn't want, like, my kid or anybody else not, you know, even to know them. Because they were so just, I don't care if they're the grandparents and say that they'll treat you better. I didn't want my kid around them, so I just up and left. I outed my father as a pedophile because my niece was born into the house, and he told me what he was going to do to her. And I started my own healing. I mean, I went immediately into a uh, incest therapist, which is very rare to find back in my day. I worked my ass off with her because I wanted to get it done and out of because I was like is in such a bad mood all the time the anxiety never stopped I was so angry that you know I was like almost like my father but not crazy it was just a learned behavior and it wasn't where I wanted to be so I wanted to get myself better and the one thing I said I would never do is repeat to my son what happened to me and I kept that that promise he's going to be 40 at the end of the month but the effect that she had on my life and my father had on my life and then I had a sociopath brother who tried to kill me one time he crushed my throat uh he threw me out a two-story window I had mental illness around me constantly all the time until I left that house and then when I had my son he was mentally ill um, you couldn't tell by talking to him because he's, his intelligence is off the charts. He's very artistic and very everything else, but truly he is so mentally ill that he is dangerous. But I've managed to keep him, you know, out of the hospitals since he's 15, um, and everything was working fine. But I'm, I've lived only around mentally ill people, and I know what people say about them. Uh, I know the stairs, I, I know the assumptions that they did this, that they did that. It doesn't end. It doesn't end. So when you came, when I read your bio, I was like, this is the person that I want to listen to. So I thank you for coming on. Um, just to hear such a success story coming from such an abusive place. I know what those abusive places with other people ended up, um, and it's not where you did, you know. It's where like my yeah. sister did, you know. So to hear success, like I said, to hear a success story, I think it's phenomenal. Well, I'm, I I would say I'm a work in progress because of the amount of trauma we've all experienced. It's it's the healing is is a journey. It's not like you're ever going to be fully healed. Um, 
because of the length of time and the amount of abuse that we experience. So it's it's learning tools and skills to get through the day so you have more happiness and joy and peace in your life. So that's what I like to teach my clients and the groups that I work with, that even from the darkest place, there you can find uh, a glimmer of hope and, and some sunshine. Um, and, and it's difficult. There are some days that, you know, I, I, my anxiety comes back a little bit and I'm anxious and then I have to process those feelings. Where is it coming from? What is, what is What's being triggered by that? But one, one thing that's definitely helped me on my healing journey is boundaries. Um, my mother's still living, but I have to have firm boundaries with her because she's one of my biggest triggers. So I limit the, the time, type of contact I have with her. I limit our face-to-face interactions because I'm in a place where I'm in control of my life. I have, have you know, more joy and happiness and, and success in my life. And people um, with personality disorders like my mom, they are um, – they are energy suckers. They, you know, they because they don't know how to read cues and personalities and understand other people's emotion, it's difficult to interact and talk with them. So if, if anybody can get anything out of this, to start on your healing journeys, you need firm boundaries. Yeah, that's, that's right. why I kicked mine out. I was like, that's it. you don't even get a chance. I kicked them out. This is now my life. This is now what I want, and this is now the way I'm going to do it. And that's what we right. got. That's what we did. Well, you know, let me say something here because what you're both saying here, and this is good. Um, one thing we do say on NASCA, and it can be because of family members. Many times it is because of family members or abuse. Many times, you know, you're speaking about incest. Uh, many of us have gone through that. I had two that I had to worry about, an uncle that I lived with, unfortunately, while my mother was getting divorced. And um, that's why I started at the age of six. And then thinking that I had a, a brother who was five years older than me, he'd protect me, right? Now, he became my abuser, too, by the age of nine. So, you see, we live with this. And my mother was a narcissist, and I'm not too sure quite what else. Okay, I mean, she had something else going on there because of her disgusting, horrific temper. I mean, it was so bad. I had the temper. <laughs> I think I got that from her. But not, not, she's mean. She was mean, okay? She was mean. And, um, you know, the borderline personality disorders that you're referring to with your mother, you know, as you well know, it has all different facets to it. So then one day you're like, or maybe a week you're like bipolar. Because I, I worked in the yeah. mental health field. Yeah, I worked at that too. And, and you know, there's yeah, all different ways you can behave. Too. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, and uh, there's all kinds of stuff. So, or or you can be antisocial. I mean, there's all kinds of things. You know, you never know how it's going to hit you. And it can last for a week at a time or two weeks. And you have to be watched. And you have to check the levels all the time, blood levels. Right. So they can be medicated properly. But anyway, the point is... Um, what you're talking about is a horrific life, and it takes guts and it takes strength, um, you know, to get to where you are today. Yes, I worked at a lot of places. Yes, I did this. Yes, I did that. But I still kept making mistakes along the way. Um, right. I, you know, I chose poorly with the partners and so forth. I have two wonderful children. They grew up fine. I don't know how. 
I just know they did, and I'm proud of them, all right? <laughs> and um, that was because the, they had their time. But, you know, the point, because of the bad husbands and stuff. But anyway, the point is this. Um, when you go have, you know, when you have this terrible nightmarish type of childhood, like Lori was saying, she didn't feel like um, she could look back and see any good memories. I can. I did see some good memories, like Christmas time. Even though her mother was an atheist, oh yeah, she believed in Christmas because it was fun. Okay, and uh, you know, and other things like that. So I can look back at the holidays and see, you know, you know, some fun times and so forth. But in between, that's not enough, honey. Because in between, you've got that other personality, that person that comes out, and uh, she would hit me for no reasons and, and things like that. It was disgusting. Were you beaten yes. also? Did your mother hit you? Oh, yeah. My mother was very physically violent. Um, and like I said, like it was to the point where she would, you know, hit us with objects like brooms and mops and break those yeah. the sticks on us. Um, she's hit my brother with a car. She's punched us with closed fists. Um, one memory that, you know, I had to process was I was probably around 10 or 11 and she was enraged for whatever reason, and um, she had me face down on the bed on my belly, and she was on my back with her knees and my shoulders, and she was hitting me with a belt all over my body, and I couldn't breathe because my face was thin. And my mother's words to me was, die, be, die. So she did horrific things like that. Um, and with the deep depression she would get in, um, there was a period of four years where my mother did not leave the house. She wouldn't, she couldn't physically go outside to check the mailbox. So um, once my parents separated and we were, um, you know, brought from Nigeria to the U.S., I became parentified. I became my younger sibling's parent. So at the age of seven, because of my mother's ups and downs, I had to learn how to write checks, you know, grocery shop talk to bill collectors, pay the rent, pick my siblings up on public transportation. Um, and um, so I lost my childhood because I then became a parent. And I, because my mother was so disconnected and there were periods of time throughout my childhood that she got so overwhelmed that she would just abandon me and my siblings. Um, she would make sure rent was paid for the most part because we got evicted a few times, but... For the most part, rent was paid, but then I had to figure out how to get food. So I learned about food banks and resources in my community. So I think that's what made me such a successful social worker is because as a young child, I had to utilize these services to make sure me and my younger siblings had food and, and clothing and just our basic needs met. I believe that. I believe that. So many times kids will take on the role of the parent, okay? Um, what I haven't mentioned to you is my mother was terribly abused by her first husband. It turns out he's not really my father. Thank God for ancestry. I'm kind of glad that side isn't my family, okay? <laughs> but anyway, so the thing of it is, is at the age of four, I was mopping her face off at times because she had blood all over her. Now, they didn't realize mm -hmm. I was watching, all right? They didn't know this, and uh, but only by those three times that I went into the kitchen, and the third time, he would have killed her, my so-called father. 
I mean, I, wow. I have never known anything but violence. You know, when you were a kid, you played with the pots and pans, right? And there was this one pan that I didn't want to play with because it was heavy and it wasn't fun, okay? Didn't have a lid, the black skillet, you know what I'm talking about, the heavy, the frying pan. So I said to my stupid brother, I call him that because he was my abuser too, but I said to him, um, what does kill mean? Because I was only four years old. So there was a, a bug or something in the room, his room, a fly, I don't remember what it was, but he smashed it. And he said, kill, dead, never to move again. Now, he would hide from my father under the covers because he had been hit. I had never been hit by this monster. So I started to watch even more closely because after he told me that, um, I saw him pick up that pan that I couldn't lift hardly, and he was going to hit her in the head. Okay? Oh, wow. And I thought, yeah. So she was crouched down. I'll never forget this. She was crouched down in the corner of the kitchen. I'm standing in the hallway behind them and not realizing I was there. And I saw him go over to her. Now, I found out years later that he weighed 240 and my mother weighed 95. Okay? She couldn't eat. That's how it was affecting her. So he raised his hand up with this heavy pan. And he came down. He was about ready to hit her. And I screamed, no, Daddy, no. And he spun around, and he came stomping down the hallway then and grabbed the hold of me. He had dropped the pan, grabbed the hold of me, and smashed me against the stairwell. And I felt every single bone in my back, believe me. And then he dropped me like a, a, a doll, you know, a rag doll. And he left. I, hadn't, I didn't see him for three years after that, and I didn't care. But you see what happens is when we when we see all this terrible violence and this all the dysfunction, the environmental conditioning in the house, then what does it do to us? We're just kids, okay? So then we grow up with terrible dysfunction and we don't know how to behave and, and all this other stuff. Normally we don't know. We don't have um, what to work with. You had a teacher that patted you on the on the back and, and patted you on the head, so to speak, and said, I can tell you're very intelligent, which you are. And, um, you know, I hope you're going to go to college. This gave you, this was something, it was like giving you a gift, okay? Because, right. yes, and then you ran with that gift because that's what we need. We all need to be told is that we are people of worth. That And if we're smart, that we are very smart and that we, we can excel, we can do things, we can become things. So at least you had that one person in your life that you respected and she respected you and she gave to you a gift and that was the gift of hope, okay? Yeah. And, and that's, a be- that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. Let me see if Philip has, if he wants to say hello or if he wants to listen. Philip, you're on. Hello, I have a question for the guest. Okay. For everybody. Mm-hmm. You're well, ready. Thank Go you ahead. for sharing. Um, have you ever heard of the, pa- the Penny Lane Family Centers, and what do you think about them? I'm not familiar with them. Is that a book? The Penny Lane Family Center is a it's a center for families, and I went to a transitional age youth center there. So I just wanted somebody else's opinion on it. 
Okay, yeah, I'm not familiar with that organization. I'm sorry, Philip. No big deal. Okay. Um, Philip, you know, on the on the website we do have programs, and um, I don't talk about it very often. Maybe I should talk about it more. But um, that NASCA N A A S C A dot org website. That's our website, right? Um, over to the left hand side, you'll see red blocks. And that first red block on the left-hand side is programs. And all you have to do is to click on to that, and then you'll see a whole bunch of countries, whatever, because we, we've had many countries call in, all right? And uh, they have to be English-speaking, though, really. But then under that is the United States. And, like, I'm from New Jersey right now. Okay. So I go over, I click New Jersey, and then everything is alphabetical. And wherever you live you might find programs right near you that you didn't even know existed because they don't have signs outside, okay? And um, you might find something through that. You might find something through that. You know, just check it out. Because I'm on the website right now. Okay. Go to your state. Click on to uh, programs or whatever it says there, and you'll see the world spinning around. You'll see the picture of the world spinning around. Gotcha. Okay, got that. Okay, now scroll down a little bit more, and you'll come to the United States and go to wherever you're from and just click on to it and, you know, say, say I don't know, say the, the county or the city that goes either way that you're near, say it starts with a B. So then you scroll down to B where all the Bs are, and then it has lists of programs. And uh, that's for people who have been, you know, sexually abused or maybe they've suffered terribly from domestic violence or um, other things, to, you know, to that type of thing. Sometimes you'll find even a group for men, just men, depends on what state it is and, and also, you know, whereabouts it is. And, you know, so just check that out. And you might find a program, I don't know, five miles away from your house that you never even knew existed. Okay. And it's worth, I've had guys call me on the, on the night owl, and I had two men from South Jersey, okay, they called me, and it was in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, and that's all I'll say about them, and um, they each found a program that satisfied them, and one did get back to me and, and thanked me for giving them that information. So there are times when people do get back, and they say, hey, this works for me, thank you. And then that way you can, you know, meet people and, um, you know, talk to people, and they all have the same problem, whatever your problem might be. Okay? Thank you. Okay. Let, let me know how you make out on that, you know, and uh, maybe I can find something else if you can't find the proper program. But anyway, uh, it's something to definitely look into. All right. So where were we? Um we were talking about, uh, okay, how about talking about, you know, different programs and so forth. You're a social worker. I was a um, state-certified board technician in Greystone Psychiatric, which they have torn down now. They should have, though, because it was full of asbestos. <laughs> I'm glad they tore it down. Um, I don't know what happened to all those patients, okay? I don't know what happened to them. 
but uh, I, I know that a lot of the, the programs that used to be out there, a lot of the hospitals, a lot of the uh, other things, um, unless you're in, into business for yourself and you have your own office, a lot of the places are not available anymore. They're just not. You're absolutely correct. And there is a big shortage of mental health professionals in the country. And um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I often hear a lot of people that I come in contact with saying, that, you know, they've been having difficulty finding a a practitioner or someone that they connect with. Um, So I've heard that feedback as well. And because of government, you know, budget cuts and different things, access to health care is is becoming harder. And you see in society that people are really struggling with depression, anxiety, suicide, suicidal ideations and and different issues. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really think because so many of us experience trauma in our childhood that never goes addressed, and then as we get older, it just imp- it, it just compacts and it gets worse as, as it goes on. And then that's where you see people now drinking more, using mm-hmm. substances more, and all these other risky behaviors that is um, really unhealthy. That's right. That's exactly right. Because we're always trying to get rid of that pain, okay? And, right. you know, a lot of people don't tell their story until they're, in, you know, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, actually 30s, young. Um, usually it's in the 40s or 50s when when people come on the show. And then once in a while we'll have those in their 20s, and, and uh, that's rare, though, and uh, and 30s. But um, the point is to tell your story, to get it out there, People can visualize as you're you're telling the story, you know, what you went through, and then they don't feel alone anymore because there's somebody else out there. Not that they want you to hurt, <laughs> yeah, but they're hurting. And then if you're successful, and which you obviously are very successful, um, you've gotten to that point in your life, um, you know, then it gives them hope. You know, this is all, right. what we all need to know is that, you know, you can heal. And we call it the healing journey here at NASCA because that's what it is. It is a journey. Once you get on Absolutely. And, oh, yeah. And, you, I mean, you've been on your healing journey for quite some time. But there's some people that are just starting out. And, and they're listening. There might be people listening to the computer right now. And um, so for them, it's, it's a, a, a win-win situation because they say, okay, here's a person that went through something very similar to mine. My mother was this, she was that. There was a lot of mental illness in the family, blah, 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 like what you were saying. And also the sexual abuse, the physical, the mental, the emotional, because that's what it turns into, the emotional abuse. You know? um, right. And still, look at how she is today. See, there is hope. There's hope. And uh, yeah. so that's very and- important. Yeah. And I wanted to share, that's why I titled my book, I Need Help. Um, It's a story of trauma, trials, and triumphs because, like I shared earlier, when I was sexually abused at the age of four and and I asked for help and it didn't come, um, I I stopped asking for help. And um, I'm sure you're aware when you're sexually violated at a young age, you just become prey for other people. So it was, you know, multiple people violated me, and then at 14 I was sexually assaulted. And um, and, and the abuse just kept getting worse until I hit that wall and had that really severe panic attack. And 
One thing that helped me on my healing journey was actually talking about it because I was hidden behind this shield of shame for so long, um, thinking that I was going to be judged, I was going to be mocked, that people were going to tease me or not understand me. <clears throat> but all of that was actually a lie. And when I asked for help and I started talking and that weight was lifted, I realized, first off, I wasn't alone because one in three girls is sexually abused in her life and one in four boys. And there was a community of people who were survivors of childhood abuse, childhood sexual abuse, and, um, and connecting with the right therapist, the right support group, the right friends and family where you could be safe and vulnerable to share your story and be supported is, is, is the most beneficial part of healing is finding your village, finding your community where, um, where you know, they, they could support you. Well, that's so true. Now, a lot of us, though, we don't have that family support, okay? Like when I wrote my book, I had to sit my kids down because you have to understand, I already had a lifetime sort of like, right, before my children were born. Right. And um, they had actually good treatment from the very person, one of the very people that abused me so in, in a different way, the neglect and, and, and all this other stuff. I found out later on why she hated me so much, and she told me she hated me. And you struck a chord with me because your mother was saying, die, okay, die. Well, my mother didn't care that I was trying to commit suicide, and I was cutting my wrist, and she said, do it and do it right, okay? And she meant it, <laughs> okay? And my stepfather was on the other side going, yeah, yeah, gee, thanks. And my friend I was talking about is the one that saved my life. She went on a bad date, and... Uh, Luckily for me, she came home early, and she got me out of there. So, you see, we've had these terrible things that happen to us. And some people just simply don't make it because they don't get the help that they need. They don't have other family members, you know, that they can go to. And because there is lack of, of, uh, you know, like in our communities, if we don't have friends in our communities, if we don't have uh, places where we can go, people we can talk to, all right, if we don't have enough of those, uh, you know, like with yourself, are you in business for yourself? Do you have your own office? Or, I mean, how can people reach you, contact you? Um, yeah, I, I work for a nonprofit um, where I provide mental health services. It's, it's called M&M Project Hope. But people can get me on my website. My business website is um, BreakthroughBliss.com. Um, I offer coaching services for people who are not in the state of California. But if you're in California where I'm licensed, um, just message me, and um, I can definitely, um, you know, work with you if you need that mental health support. Um, But like I said, the important part is just knowing the first step for me on my healing journey was realizing that my life was out of control and I couldn't handle it. And then the second step was asking for help. And uh, what I like to tell a lot of people is when I first started, I had no idea what to do, but thankfully I had health insurance. And with my health insurance, I was able, you know, to contact my doctor and get a referral for behavioral health services. Now, if you're uninsured, there are different social service organizations in most cities and counties that offer mental health services. And it could be either at a, at a discounted rate, 
um, or sometimes they're even free depending on their funding source. And then there's also a lot of virtual groups, um, support groups, <clears throat> if you want to go that route and you don't want to meet um, people that you could connect with those groups to get support. So there's different ways to get the support you need to help you on this journey. Well, you know, I know there was a lot, like I said, for a while, and not not that long, because then things started happening with funding and all this other stuff, and, and a lot of the places did close down, I know that. And um, the hospitals remained intact for the longest because, uh, you know, the hospital is a hospital. So, um, right. and Greystone Psychiatric was a hospital in itself. So that was around for the longest, and then I realized that they have torn them down. So um, it's really hard today for people because look at all the people out on the street. They're not all drug addicts. They're not. We had the vets no. out there. Yeah. We had the vets out there. I know this because I worked with the homeless in New York and um, not that long ago. And now I'm not going to New York City right now, <laughs> all right? I'm, I may be uh, tough and strong, but I'm not stupid, all right? <laughs> it's not a good idea. But, um, yeah, I was doing that for a while, and uh, and I enjoyed doing that because, like what you said, you were there, I was there. A lot of people on NASCAR, you know, were in that position. So it's an interest to me. So, um, but anyway, the point is that uh, I'll give you an example. There was this van going around years ago on Lexington Avenue there in New York, and um, it was a white van, and this white van was picking up uh, young girls who were out on the street. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they were taking them to a program that was being funded. Now, they were giving them their education, you know, they didn't finish their high school, most of them. And so they got them their GEDs and things like that. Um, they gave them housing. They gave them clothing. Whatever their needs were, they were in this building that was being funded. And they were getting all kinds of counseling because they, too, needed to have psychological treatment. You know, they, they'd gone through too much, too much. And uh, right. that was a lovely thing. And then all of a sudden, one day I realized, hey, that van's not around anymore. Well, they couldn't get the funding, so they closed wow. down. Yeah. So you see, yeah. when we have, yeah, so when we have all of these these uh, organizations, you know, that are available for people, you know, who are mentally ill, uh, I mean, some of those girls, they didn't even want to go back to, like, getting a regular job because they didn't get paid as much. You know what I'm saying? Their, their thought process is completely off. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. So yeah. anyway, the point is that uh, they had to be taught and they had to learn. But then all of a sudden, it was closed down. And there's so many other organizations that have been closed down. So it's a hard thing. So when you mentioned a couple ways that people could, you know, I don't know, uh, I don't know, is it in your bio? You're from California. That's right. You're from Fairfield, California. The organizations that, yeah, the organizations that you mentioned, is that in Fairfield or or is it around there or what? Well, no, for the most part, because um, I live in California now, but I'm a Florida native. Um, But I know that um, in in most counties, yeah, in most counties um, and and local, like, Cities, there, there should be funding for behavioral health services, 
you know, you would have to contact your, your county behavioral service agency to find out what what options they have available. Um, because I know there was um, there was funding in, in a bill that was passed a few years ago to help fund um, mental health services. But what I'm realizing from just living in California, that it's, it's more of a need than there are actual practitioners. So a lot of times people, you know, if you do find a therapist, you might have to wait a little while or, you know, you might have to find someone that might be a little out of your area. But because of, of virtual health or telehealth now, it's easier for p people to connect with mental health services outside of their area and still get the support that they need because you can meet via telephone, via Zoom or Skype and different options like that. Okay. Now, someone's trying to talk. I don't know if it's Bill, but he's working, so I'm not sure, or if it's Philip. No, I'm, I'm, um, I'm here listening. I've listened to the whole show, and I, I will make a comment if you'd like me to. Sure. Yeah? I, I didn't want to yeah. bother you because you were working. It said they're working. No, I'm, I'm still working. They're working. Go ahead. That's, yeah. That's okay. I'm Go still ahead. working, but it's okay. Um, I have been very interested in, uh, in the story that you told, um, and it was uh, – I, I agree with Carol, it was uh, you know kind of smoothly told. <laughs> I'm not sure what word she used, but um, you know I find it interesting that you're uh, so. Uh, I guess you didn't spend that much time in in Africa, right? You, you spend most of your life in the U.S. But you know, I was going to say well, in the <laughs> yeah. Um, well, my my parents, my father's Nigerian, my mom is uh, American, and they met in college. And um, after they got married, they had me, my older brother, and myself. And at around the age of one, we moved to Nigeria. So almost uh, probably seven and a half, almost eight is when my mom, you know, had her manic issue and brought us back to the states. And that was right. the catalyst for the breakdown of the marriage and the divorce. So I have like seven good years of memories in Nigeria, and those are the memories yes. that I held on to to help yes. me get through the trauma of my childhood because they were some of right. my most formative years. Right. Well, I just want to mm -hmm. say that you're doing a terrific job, and I want to make a comment about the last thing that you talked about, which is the lack of, uh, you know, the lack of uh, therapists, really, uh, of social workers and therapists and life coaches and so forth, I think it's a very good point that you make that, you know, people may get stuck in uh, looking for somebody local, but because at this point, almost all therapists do uh, teletherapy, you know, <laughs> they do online therapy. Um, Correct. It's because that's one of the things that COVID brought us, was it's, we're, we're quite comfortable with doing things through Zoom, you know, or whatever. And... Um, so I want to I want to make sure people understand that if you're if you feel frustrated as a newcomer you can't find the right person don't depend on your local area depend on you know they depend on the net uh, maybe in your state or your county or your but even bigger the whole country I mean that's how we do this show right <laughs> we this show is international frankly uh, but anybody that calls in is is on the show or can be on the show and can hear it on their phone, but also people can hear it later. Well, that's kind of how therapy works. So some of them will record your session, some won't. You have to find out. But, you know, they'll all, many, many of them will do sessions uh, through the computers and phones and Internet. So I do, um, 
I do recommend that people, you know, take a look at that because, you know, I know that it's very frustrating in early recovery. Everything's very frustrating. You've just made a decision to give up the secret, and that's a huge decision, uh, which you mentioned too. It's a, it, it is a turning point for for a survivor of child abuse to even, you know, express a, in a small way what happened to them, even in a, just a comment, because we're terrified <laughs> that people are going to judge us. We're terrified that we'll be thought of as responsible for whatever happened when we were eight, you know. Uh, we're terrified that, um, that, that the, and shamed that the, that the, uh, uh, that the facts are the way they are. You know, we'd rather that they weren't and we'd think that we have to keep it quiet because nobody will want to be with us. Nobody will understand. You know, all of this is not true. But we have to be talked into the first time we get comfortable with revealing our story, even if it's in a small group. Well, that's what therapy is. You know, it's you talk about it. And now you made, you made the point very quite a few times that you want someone who's trauma-informed or trauma-trained, which is absolutely correct. They're not, all therapists are not the same, but what we're looking for as child abuse victims is, is what I just said, someone who's trauma-trained or trauma-informed. That's the language that we use because those are the people that have been, you know, that are, that are capable of, of helping us. And we're fortunate. You know, at one time there weren't any of these people. There were none. <laughs> but for, for boys, there were none, for sure. And most, mostly for girls, there were none. You know, so um, we have them today, and um, and they are ready to help. So I, I want to say that thank you very much for being on the show, and I really appreciate your your input here. And we'd love to pick your brain a little more and make you part of the Nazca family somehow. <laughs> I think I think that'd be oh, great. Definitely. Because advocacy is another thing that I do. Um, I'm an advocate for child abuse survivors um, here locally because I'm a survivor myself. So I give talks and speeches regarding it, and I really appreciate what you guys are doing here um, because when you were mentioning in the mission statement, you said child abuse um, is like a pandemic, and it really is. The numbers are staggering. Um, And um, throughout my career as a social worker, I had the opportunity to work as an advocate at a a rape crisis center, and that's when the realization of sexual abuse in our country, that's when it really hit me because I worked with, you know, kids 11, 12, and 13 that were violated by people closest to them and just, you know, being that support for them and seeing that that violation was going to impact the rest of their life was really heartbreaking. So I really want to commend you guys for, for the work that you do, and it's an honor well, to be we, on your platform. You know, I don't want you to feel like you can't participate. You know, you're a member already of the NASCA family by giving us your story. Okay. And we have many things that are that, that are available to do for survivors who want to be activists, and uh, some of them are helping, of course, the nonprofit itself. Uh, but all of them relate to you know, providing this comfortable space, I hope you feel it's comfortable, <laughs> for um, people to, people who are survivors to, to help each other. That's all it is. It's a community, right? 
right. one person after another. So, you know, that's that's what we've built, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. And you can you can talk with Carol a little bit about it during the rest of the show, but there, you'll, yes. you'll okay. touch, she'll touch on a number of things that you might be interested in. Okay, but thank you. Well, so thank much. you. You've yeah, been a great yeah. time so far. Yeah, thanks, yeah. Carol. Oh, okay. Well, you're welcome. Uh, I'm very much enjoying. I'm very much enjoying having her on. You know, there's all yeah. different kinds of ways that you can. Yeah, there's all different kinds of ways that you can work with NASCA. Okay, we have our professionals that come on on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I don't know if that slot is completely filled now or or not. I'll have to look at it. But the point is, um, a lot of times I have to fill in if somebody doesn't, uh, you know, can't come on or whatever. And I have the background where I can do that. But on the other hand, we would love to have you on, certainly as a panelist, for God's sake, because uh, you have so much to offer. And, um, you know, you call Monday through Friday, and you can get on the show the same time, you know, as you called in tonight. It's the same thing. Okay. As a panelist, you know, we need panelists badly. And, uh I don't know. I, I think it's since the COVID, so much of it has, like, gone down because people are running around in a panic. And it's not just about the COVID. I'm talking about everything else that goes with it. The streets, right. our safety, yeah. what's going to happen tomorrow. And now we've got this thing floating around in the sky <laughs> from China. Oh, and, I've and, heard you know, about that. Yeah, I saw it, okay? So anyway, uh, I got a, I caught a glimpse of it. It's going around in all different areas, and, and I'm thinking to myself, what is that thing? Is it a flying saucer? You know, a flying saucer isn't round like a ball. I don't understand this. So anyway, then we find out that it's from China, and it's, it's sort of like taking pictures of who knows what. I'm not sure. A grid, okay, for the electrical, or, or what, what are they doing? I don't know. So um, people are now filled with panic in the sense it takes them a little bit away of their, if those who are stuck, you know, in, oh, well, this one did that to me, that one did this to me, and all this other thing. And uh, they, many times they stuck, you know, and they don't get out of that place that they're in. Unfortunately, with some of them, they're too comfortable being in that because they want the attention, like from someone like us, okay, uh, people on the show and everything, because they're getting the attention. But that's not healing. That's not healing. So Correct. to teach people, yes, to teach people that there is hope for them, that they can heal, that they can get out of that rut that they're in, they can move forward, but they have to do it themselves, okay? You know that, I know that, we all know that. But um, unfortunately, some people don't move forward, and then they stay stuck. Then you have those that want to move forward. Okay, and those are the great ones that I enjoy talking to. I can talk to them in the a.m. or because I am the night owl, and uh, sometimes they call even before then. I have a gal that's over in the ER now, and I'm hoping that she'll go into the mental health system through there because they do have it, okay, in that particular hospital. Let's see if she goes through with it, though. You see, I can't make her do it. She's got to do it herself. So... um and I hope she does. She's done it before. Now, maybe she'll do it this time, and she has to realize she's not the boss. She has to let them guide her and teach her and all this other stuff. A lot of us are such survivors and, and uh, maybe not quite on that survival uh, journey, but they're fighters, and they don't want people to say, well, you have to do this or you can't have this. You can't have your cell phone for two weeks while you're here. 
because we want you to get yeah. used to thinking about, you know, you know what I'm talking about, the shelters and all this other stuff. And um, But still in all, it's for their good, and they have to understand that, all right, because if people are going to heal, they have to cooperate too. And yeah. you know that as a therapist, okay, that, um, okay, uh there's good therapists, there's bad therapists, there's therapists who care, there's those who really walked in our shoes like you have, and so you have a better understanding than a lot of therapy and a lot of therapists out there and counselors and so forth um, because you've been there. So, you know, you're yeah. a good person to talk to, and, and people here at NASCA are good people to talk to. We've done our thing too, all right? So, um, well, but on the Cheryl, other hand, I would definitely- go ahead. I would definitely love to be a panelist when I'm available, so I'll definitely keep an eye out for shows that I can be a panelist on. But one thing I wanted to touch on that you mentioned is, you know, giving up that control when we need help, um, because Mm -hmm. hyper-independence is one of the trauma responses, especially if you experience the type of trauma that that we have. We, We want to be independent and in control of our lives because, Someone took that away from us when they violated us. So it can be very difficult for people when they're going into, like, a residential program or they have to go to a crisis stabilization unit. It's trusting other people for their care because um, in their childhood they trusted, you know, their caregivers or adults around them and they let them down and, you know, they hurt them. So, um, and people like that, you you just have to reassure them. You have to give them grace, and you have to be patient with them. Mhm, mhm, mhm. I have um, quite a few people that call me, and uh, most of it is in the AM. <laughs> it's a good thing on my dial. But anyway, um, sometimes I'll be on the phone with them for well over an hour, maybe two hours, if they're really in in, in trouble. But. Um, Again, they have to want to, um, you know, help themselves. They have to want to and and to give that up. I don't know what that noise is. Should I start dancing or something? I don't know. (laughs) What is that? I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and like I tell my my clients and the groups that I work with, change mm-hmm. comes two ways, by choice or by force. If you're yeah. forced to change, mm-hmm. that, that change is not really going to stick. But when you make the choice to change and you have that buy-in, then the, the, the plan and the steps that you take are going to be more successful for you. Um, so, you know, when someone is ready to start their healing journey, that's why it's important to, you know, to have good support and resources, and, you know, that's going to take them some time to do the research to, to find the, the right group or therapist um, in their area or online service, but they're worth the investment. Their healing is worth the investment, and a lot of us that are survivors of abuse um, we, we think we're unworthy or we're undeserving, but I, I want to let people know that you are enough. You you deserve this peace. You deserve healing, and it's going to be scary at first, but once you start on your journey, it gets easier and life gets better, and you do have the opportunity to live a more fulfilled life um, and, and, and build those healthy connections and relationships that, that, that you're dying to have because I know a lot of us isolate um, because of the shame and fear. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very, very, very true. You belong at NASCA. Yes, you do. Um, you you uh, already are talking the talk. Let me bring on Lori. I, I know that 
you know, she might have a question and want to make a comment, and then I'll go down to Philip and see if he has something he'd like to say. Go ahead, Lori. Uh, you definitely came far and have made a difference already. So I know you're going to stay on track, and you're handling a lot. So you're good at balancing all different things. Um, somebody that I would, if I was going into therapy, I mean, I would go trust you. I could tell mm-hmm. that you're one that's very trustworthy. There's some that, you know, aren't. And if you don't hook up right with someone, yeah, it doesn't work. So mm-hmm. I, had a, I had a question. It's sort of like I trust you to ask this question. I would never ask this question to anyone else. Um, what do you think about a therapist um, who came from an abusive background, didn't deal with it, but really is a psychiatrist because she's uh, a psychologist. She's got the brains, but she quit, quits her jobs very frequently because she doesn't, I don't know, get, get enough rest days off. I thought therapists work nine to five type, you know, forty-hour-a-week jobs. But when she can't, she can't handle the stress. You get. Well, it sounds like she she is burnt out, and this profession might not be the one for her. Because as a therapist, you can get secondary trauma from hearing different stories. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't done your own healing um, to be grounded and to be able to hear this difficult, those difficult stories, then this might be something that you need to take a break from. Um, as a social worker, um, I talk about having a, a therapist because I still need my own support, and I can only provide a good quality service if, if I am fully healed and, 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 and whole because how am I going to give advice to other people if I'm not speaking from a healed place? So it, it sounds like this, this therapist is struggling, and, and maybe they need to connect with their own mental health services to work through the issues that are, are, are causing them to have, you know, this, this anxiety or feeling like, you know, they're unsupported or getting burnt out early, because all of that sounds like unresolved trauma to me. Yeah, she wasn't built for this job that she took on. You know, it was easy for her to you know, go through all the courses and get the thing because, unfortunately, she also lived with mental people, mentally, mental family members. So she was mm. very keen into the world. But I think of her patients, her clients, especially the kids, you know, that upset her too much, reaching out, telling them, Daddy's touching me, you know, in the schools. She, she walked mm. out on that job. She quit. And that's when I, yeah. I was like, you're not in the right field. This is, this is not the field to be in. Mm-hmm. And talking to you, you sound about her age. And I can tell well, what a I, difference. Well, for me, because I, I worked in my early career as a social worker, I've worked in child welfare and child protection. And those roles are very difficult because you see the worst in humanity, especially when you're working with children who, you know, are experiencing abuse. That, yeah, most people in that field last about two to three years max because there's only so much trauma that you can see. There's only so much abuse you can see. So if that was the area of social work or, or, or um therapy that she was in, I could understand her being burnt out because my first 
um, job in child welfare. I worked there about two years, and then I, I left and took a break and went into another area of social work. And then I returned to child protection, and I worked that for three years, and I couldn't handle it anymore. So you have to know what your limits are as well. And I realized when I was getting overwhelmed and burnt out, it was time for me to pivot and find another area of social work. And at that point, I was in my master's program and about to graduate. So once that happened, then, you know, I started my license process to be um, a clinical uh, therapist. Wow, that's a lot of work. Yes, a lot of work. I want to make mention of the fact, too, that when I worked at Gravestone with the psychiatrists, they had their own psychiatrists. So you see, so what you're saying, that kind of like backs up what I saw because I was um, a technician, in other words, I worked with them. So I saw a lot of all this stuff, and I learned a lot from them. But I knew that they had their own psychiatrists. And I used to laugh at that. I used to think that was funny, all right? But then I realized, like what you're saying, you know, we we can only take so much of, of what we see. And those of us who have been, you know, abused, maybe it's triggering. All right? It can trigger certain areas of our lives if you don't have that under control, if you don't have a handle on that. So that can happen. And then um, also, too, we had at Gravestone, we did have one day a month, where all of us could take off for that day and sort of like uh, treat yourself nice that day, okay, and and still get paid for it. Because we had over 500 beds at one point. Oh, my God. So think about all the amount of people we had to have working at at Greystone. And we housed murderers as well. So we had a police force. And we had our own small hospital, major hospitals. You had to go to Morristown, New Jersey, okay. So we had this huge, huge place, and we had a huge amount of people and probably not enough psychiatrists. And so I'm sure, from what I saw, yeah, they were definitely overloaded. And so they would come in, maybe not to counsel, that's where we came in, but to uh, just do the medicine change and and all that other stuff. Look at the, like I mentioned earlier, the blood levels uh, of patients where they they look at the, you know, the logging. Were they acting out? Do they are they aggressive? That was usually the one that they wanted to keep them from is becoming aggressive because then they could become dangerous. Okay, and even to staff, right? So uh, you know, it was a very very hard rough job, and and for some people, um, they can't quite take it, or they've had enough, and and they need yeah. a break. Yeah, they need a break. Well, maybe there's time and for them to. Yeah. I'm sorry, Carol. I just wanted to add, and that's why a lot of mental health clinics and hospitals and agencies are now incorporating self-care for their employees because there was a period of time where, you know, social workers were leaving and therapists were leaving because you didn't have um, that space to decompress and and process Mm -hmm. some of the stories that that you were hearing so, and, and I think this is a positive thing because they're realizing the toll that it takes to be a mental health provider. And now with the shortage, people that are in the field, you're bombarded with more clients than you can handle. And then some people try to take on more clients than they can truly handle, then they feel overwhelmed, then they get burnt out, then they leave, and it's a vicious cycle. Yeah, and they actually get sick. 
many times they have more, yeah. uh, you know, sicknesses than any, anyone else, even the clients, right, or the patients, whichever you're working with. And uh, yeah. because their their caseload is too high and and they can't handle it. Yeah, they can't handle it. Correct. So, you know, yeah, I, it's all very true. Because, you know, we're people too, okay? <laughs> all right? Correct. So, you know, you know but... Um, yeah, we we we've lost too much though. Okay, we've lost too much, and uh, by sending the person to the hospital and hoping that they went, I don't know if that's going to help that person because I don't even know if they went, and I don't know if they can help them. They tried before and it didn't do too good. So we we were missing organizations, all right, to send people to for people to go to because they are closed down. So I don't know what the answer to that is, but I'm very happy that you're around, okay? (laughs) Well, one of the answers I can tell you is to support nonprofits, you know, give them donations, because nonprofits and these small agencies are really the ones on the front line of this Mm -hmm. mental health pandemic that we're having. And um, a lot of times, because of budget cuts and things, they lose funding, and then they have to close down or reduce their staff. So... If you know a nonprofit organization that you see is doing good work, make sure to donate and encourage other people to donate so they can continue to provide those services in the community. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a good advice. Like right here, we're a nonprofit. You know, we don't get any we don't Correct. get paid for anything that we do. And um and yet we all have our stations on uh you know, on uh, on this show, we will have the things that we do for this show, and we work outside of of NASCA too. You know, trying to help people. So it, it's a constant right. thing, and it, it's also too. You know, you have to make that decision that you, that you want to go uh, and do this. But then you can always pull back, especially the ones outside of NASCA. Like I don't have to work for the homeless every day. Maybe I only work a couple times a month. Depends on who I'm working with. All right, and. Uh, I choose to be the night owl because I'm up anyway. Because I always work the shift work, so it doesn't it doesn't mean anything right. to me. It's not hard on me, okay? And uh, so I can do that. And we all have our, our places for NASCA and uh, people coming on the panel. I adore them because we need people on the panel, okay? Phillips here, and he's getting involved, and I'm really happy. Is there something that you want to say, or or have you uh, had you had enough of us tonight? <laughs> Uh, I think I'm good for the night. Thank you. Okay. Well, that's all right. So, um, you know, so whether people are listening or whether they're, you know, on the panel, you know, and, and contributing in that sense, you know, like Lori's around a lot. I'm so thankful she's here. And um, we have other people that come on. And it's – but things have changed in that sense because I think, like I said before, People are so worried about today, they're worried about tomorrow, and they're worried about next year. What's going to happen? Who's going to be here? What are we going to do? Blah, 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 and on and on it goes. And it's valid. It's valid. So, you know, their minds are in a different area. But for those people out there who want to heal and who, you know, are looking for a place to tell their story, NASCA is always going to be here. And uh, you can come here, and I can honestly say that I, in the 12 years that I've been here since I told my story, um, everyone's happy to do it. They're glad it's over with after they told it. Some people are very nervous, right? <laughs> you know? 
and then, um, but they, you know, but they, they, they know they have our support. Okay, they have our support. We're all right. survivors here. All right, so we help each other, and they know they can always come to us. And and we have services here, like the programs I was telling uh, Philip about, and uh, the other people who can be called, and then the night owl like me, and and uh, and everybody who's a part of of NASCA. We all work together. This is what we do, and that's what keeps us going strong. And uh, then also too. We want to help other other people, okay? So, well, I have a know. question, um, Cheryl, before we close yeah. out. Uh, so, yeah. if I do want to be a panelist, I just show up at the time of the show and let you know. You don't have to even let us know. Just just call in. Just call in. You got call the number. Okay. Six, yeah, the six four six five nine five two one one eight number. You just call in. I don't know. You're Pacific time, so you'd be calling in. Are you Pacific yeah. time? Yeah, so you'd be yes, calling I at am. 5 p.m. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you'd be okay. calling at 5 p.m. Yeah. Yeah. And we would love to have you on the show because you have so much to offer. And, um, you know, people are looking for help. They are. The ones that listen to the show, many times uh, they want help. So they need to keep people. They need good people who they can speak to. And uh, they know that that person will do the best that they can to help them. So welcome aboard. Yes, ma'am. Well, thank you. I'm excited. Well, we're excited, too. Isn't that right, Lori? Absolutely. There you go. (laughs) So we're going to end in just a few minutes. Oops, there's my 90-second cue. I just want to say this is a wonderful show tonight, and um, by your coming on, you give people hope, all right? I don't have time to give you a chance to hardly say goodbye because I have to start wrapping this up um, on this end here. But, yeah, feel free to come on anytime you want. We need you. We're happy you came here. And you're welcome anytime because you are a a NASCA member now. Okay? Thank you very much, Carol. Well, thank you. Everyone, good night. Have a good weekend. We'll be back on Monday, and we will have another guest. Good night, and God bless. Love Talk Radio.